Welcome to the Top Order Podcast. It's Ash's fourth test review time here on the Top Order Podcast. We're going to get reactions from myself and Baldy. I'm sure Lippy will chime in a little bit about the lack of spin in this test match. We'll talk about the rain. What are we doing loving a game that has you checking multiple weather radars for weeks and weeks on end? Selections, were the Australians too negative? Did England get it right? We'll talk about Zach Crawley and Manus Labuschagne. Cummins criticism, a little bit of Stokes criticism as well. Wood and Wokes. We'll also have a chat about the New Zealand T20 squads to the UAE and England. And we'll also talk about Virat's 29th test ton in his 500th game. All coming up on the Top Order podcast. Stay tuned. Well, boys, Ash's fourth test review. I think we've got to start there. Uh, yeah, again, look, really, really difficult to be upbeat in that intro. I'm I, really interested to get Baldy's thoughts before I think we hand over the MC duties to you, Lippy. I, I felt pretty flat waking up this morning. I kind of kept an eye on the weather radar. There was going to be obviously no play, certainly in that first session. And I instructed a couple of mates back home to loudly uh, text me and ring me if they got back on the field so I could wake up and, and go and watch the game. But obviously that call never came. Felt really, you know, felt really, really flat. And and I guess look, just looking at those presses after the the days not play Baldy, Pat Cummins and Ben Stokes, seemed as if even the captains were a little bit flat coming out of what's been a fantastic and high octane um series so far. But but I guess retaining that little urn, what does that mean? And and you know, what do you feel waking up? Um the morning after a pretty damp squib of a test match at Old Trafford? Yeah, very mixed emotions, Spinksy, because absolutely from 2-0 up, the expectation is that Australia can go on and at least retain the Ashes, if not win it outright for the first time in England in 22 years. However, I think you would have to agree, and I think most people would agree, that retaining the Ashes by getting a rained-out draw where England were on top and Australia just you know held on uh, to draw the test match is no one's ideal way of of retaining the series. So very much an anticlimax from that perspective. And I think if you asked any neutral fan, I think the overwhelming emotion would be, well, why can't we have a live series going into the Oval? But remembering, of course, that England still have a chance to square the series. There's lots and lots to play for at the Oval. Uh, Australia were up to one this time four years ago, and there was wild celebrations as as Australia... Um, kind of clinched it at that point. But this is a very, very different uh, feeling. I don't think any of the players would have wanted to retain the series or retain the Ashes in this way. But I think it is, to a certain extent, mission accomplished for Australia. They set out to at least retain the Ashes. They've done that. I don't think many people outside Australia would have fancied them as favourites to certainly not to be up 2-0. So Australia have put themselves in a great position, haven't played good cricket in this test match, but they've come away with a result that means that they they continue to hold the trophy for at least another couple of years. So I think mission accomplished. But as a fan of cricket, it was really not the way that we wanted to see it decided. Paul, do you, you said at the start of the series that you wanted uh, to be tied going into the final match? You're, yeah, you you touched on things a bit there but uh part of you gutted that about this result or are you actually just relieved now oh it's mostly relief to be fair <laughs> it is it is 98 percent relief two percent disappointment that the series is 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 not live going into the oval because i think once the series started and once australia got a win under their belt in the first test my mind immediately went to okay we're a chance here 
and now giving ourselves a chance for England to storm back and and take the series 3-2 potentially, which was what we could be talking about uh, from Australia being 2-0 up would have been, a you know, uh, not even the Ashes could produce a result like that um, this time around. So I'm, oh yeah, I'm 98% relieved that Australia have kind of got the job done, but not in a very convincing fashion, it must be said. Yeah, I, I have to agree. I think on day two, one of my notes were, maybe it's time to panic now for Australia. So uh, yeah, I think you've you've definitely got away with one there. And, and obviously from a neutral perspective, yeah, it does, it does suck that it's not 2-2. But as you said, a lot of good things that Australia did before this to get them in that position. Binksy, I think I'm really keen to hear what you make of all this because, uh, you know, if I look at the way you felt about the Besto run out, stumping, fiasco, whatever you want to call it, you and the other things you said in the series, I feel like you've often talked about, uh, you know, being gutted that, that things have not gone your way at various times, but you've remained pretty pragmatic on the, you know, who deserves to win and and all of this, you haven't really stooped to the this is unfair and all that kind of stuff. But there's a lot of that going around. I mean, are you, how are you feeling in terms of it? The the ju- you know, is does this feel unjust that we're not uh, still in a chance to to for England to win this series? I think unjust would be the wrong words. I absolutely feel gutted that. Look, to be perfectly honest, that from a cricketing perspective, it's been such an enthralling series, both on the field and then certainly in the aftermath of Lord, some of the off the field stuff that's kind of fed into the media and fed into, look, I guess really just, you know, not that the series needed a touch paper lighting underneath it, but that that incident, you know, seemed to do that, certainly for the crowd. Um, and, and I, you know, I, I certainly think, you know, in the media a little bit as well, making quite a big deal of it. Um, won't relitigate that, but, you know, the, the stumping was out. Uh, I think the flashpoint um, really just helped, you know, reignite if it needed the, the series to, to be done. So, I, so unjust is definitely the wrong the wrong word. But I think I feel cheated and robbed from a cricketing perspective that we could have gone into, look, a series that, if I'm being brutally honest, the quality of the cricket hasn't been as good as, for example, the 2005 Ashes. So, Whilst it's been, you know, whilst it's been exciting, I think both teams have, have probably underperformed a little bit at times. Whereas that 2005 series, there was match-winning performances and brilliance. You know, Shane Warne forty odd wickets, the emergence of Kevin Peterson, some fantastic bowling from Glenn McGrath in that first test with his eight for um, Simon Jones five wicket haul, Freddie Flintoff. You know, we go through through those performances over that series. So I think from a cricketing perspective, the quality's been. Um, been down a little bit but ultimately I think what we look at here is England have won once overseas in the last 20 odd years in in 2010-11 and Australia now if you kind of look at a similar period of time you know yes we're talking about 2001 since they last won in England um, but you know since 1989 they've had much more success overseas so I think from an overseas perspective Australia have performed far better um, in the Ashes overseas than England have historically. And that's what's going to go down in the record books at the end of this. Um, leading into the over, which I'm sure we'll come on to, though, I think the key thing for me is whilst the series might not be alive from a scoreline perspective, I think in terms of the relevance of this game and probably the, you know, the, 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 the ticket scalpers will be making some money up at the oval because I think a lot of people will go in and almost whilst it won't decide the series... There's still quite a lot riding on this, I think. 
uh, from an Australian point of view. They'll want to avenge a little bit what happened in 2019 um, and, and win the series. And it will be the last time that certainly David Warner probably gets to uh, to win an Ashes series on English soil. You'd think the same for Kawaja, probably the same for Steve Smith as well. Um, definitely the same for you know Nathan Lyon, although he's you know not in and around the side anymore. So I still think there's plenty of riding on this as we go uh, as we go into the Oval. But yeah, I don't feel I don't feel robbed. We all know that it rains, and it we all know that it rains in Manchester more than probably anywhere else. Yeah, I look. I, I think from yeah, as I said, from a neutral perspective, it's a shame that it's it's not two two. But I think you know, as you guys have touched on, there's so many storylines. I mean, Australia. They're not going to want to go. They're not going to want to go home with their tails between their legs after getting another, you know, what could be another thrashing at, at the Oval. So they're going to want to come back fighting. England's going to want to go there, proving that uh, they are, have been the better side across this series. Whether the the scorecard will reflect that. So yeah, as you guys said, I, I think I said to uh, Baldy the other day, I'm kind of watching this series as, as it goes on. I'm finding myself wanting to to watch this series for the storylines because there's just been so many throughout it and they keep sort of changing and twisting and turning. So yeah, I, I think there are still plenty of storylines for us to look at. I, I think before we kind of talk about the oval stuff, let's sort of look about back at this game, even though there was really only three and a bit days. They packed a lot into three days though, Lippy, and I'm, yeah, I'm sure we'll come on to that. They did. I mean, and, and I guess, you know, we've mentioned the rain, but let's talk about it in sort of a gameplay context. Baldy, I mean, do you think the forecast was the main reason for Australia's selection? I mean, were they? do you think that they've gone into this situation? Because there's been a lot of talk about selection and, mm. and what they did. And, and I mean, even we talked about it beforehand in terms of, in some ways, it felt like they couldn't decide between Green and Marsh. So they just went with both of them and found a mm. way to, to get them both in. But, you know, were Australia, do you think it was realistic that Australia were just thinking, let's just stack the batting and it's going to rain later on. Let's just make sure we don't lose in three days and uh, mm. and we'll win the Ashes. Well, that's that's a very glass-half-full view of what I thought was an absolute debacle for Australia for a, from a selection standpoint. Um, in what universe can you have a look at that England side, as chock-full of talent as they are, as, as brimful of match winners as they are during this series, each one of those England players has performed at some point in the first three tests, almost without any exceptions in their batting lineup. In what universe does Australia look at that from a selection standpoint and go, we can bowl that side out twice with three bowlers? It is ludicrous to suggest that anything other than a complete absence of faculty could lead you to think that Australia could pick Stark, Cummins and Hazelwood and a backup pair in Marsh and and green that haven't taken more than two wickets in an innings in this series and bowl England out twice for anything under 500 is absolutely ludicrous 592 is what happens when you don't when you don't respect the opposition batting lineup for the damage it can do to you and that's what happened to Australia case in point other than Stark Cummins Lyon and Hazelwood Australia's bowlers in this series have averaged 58 with the ball, cost them five runs and over at a strike rate of 70, as compared to the other four who have an average of 30, an economy of 4.3, and a strike rate of 42. Those four big four bowlers for Australia have done their job. 
we talked about, and I made a point prior to the fourth test, that Australia's bowling supporting cast has not done their job. What did they do? They elected not to reinforce their bowling stocks. They elected not to pick a spinner or show any faith in him whatsoever, despite him having a good series so far um, in India and having the support of Dan Vittori, one of the best spin coaches in the world. They decided that they would go with two all-rounders and Travis Head as their bowling options, and they were punished for it, and they deserved to be punished for it. Why did they select that that bowling lineup? Why did they go with Green and Marsh together? Because they didn't have the guts or show enough leadership to make a difficult decision in either picking between Green and Marsh or dropping David Warner. Those were the difficult decisions Australia was faced with, and for whatever reason, they couldn't make the difficult decision that they needed to make to drop a batter to balance their side appropriately, and they were absolutely hammered for it. If they come out after the fact and say, well, we thought we could bat for three days with that side, that's fine. Their batters let them down by in the first innings all getting starts and then getting bowled out for 317. That's on the batting team. But I really think that the selectors did not put Australia in any chance of winning that test match, regardless of how long it went on for. I don't know how to follow that up. Um, I, I have many, many questions, but I, I, I think it's hard to, to disagree. And I think in terms of, uh, yeah, I, I feel quite strongly that they decided we don't need to win this test. And that and they went, well, the best way to not win this, you know, the best way to not win this test in, in a way is to by picking the batters and saying, you know, we're going to have to bat for, for long enough. Then Australia have lost their identity as a cricketing nation. If we went into that test match thinking that all we need to do is draw the game and we don't want to try and win it and all we're going to do is draw the game and we have give ourselves no chance of winning, then Australia has lost their identity under Pat Cummins and Andrew McDonald. I wouldn't necessarily... We'll come to Cummins' captaincy and criticism of him in, in a little bit. I wouldn't necessarily equate that yet, but if that's the mentality that they went in with, then that's a serious question that we've got to ask. England have done a terrific job establishing a really positive identity around their cricket, whatever you think of whether or not you agree with it. But that comment there, if that's true, Australia have completely lost their way from an identity perspective. Because up until now, no captain of an Australian cricket team would go into any test match, any ODI, any T20 with any attitude other than we are here to win this game right now. Yeah, spot on, spot on. Uh, and Banksy, while we're on the rain and, and kind of the gameplay, uh, uh, the other questions that have come around on, a, on an England point of view is should they have declared earlier? I mean, I, I've, I've got a few thoughts on that, but, but I'll throw that over to you. No. <laughs> yeah, I, t- I tend to agree. It, and it's the, sa- it's the same for me as, you know, why did we declare in the first innings uh, – of our batting in that, you know, in that first test match to have 20 minutes at Australia. Um, in this scenario, we had a guy, Johnny Bairstow, with, you know, again, it's the cliche, but a point to prove. And he went through the gears and he scored runs on a pitch that typically does deteriorate a little bit in the final innings and was striking at something ridiculous in that partnership with Jimmy Anderson. Um, I think Gilbert Jessup's, you know, fastest 100 Record was under threat for a for a short period of time uh, during that onslaught. So look, absolutely not. And I think when you actually even just step back and uh, 
Stoke said in the presser afterwards, and, and look, we'll come on to this. I want you to ask me that question about um, yeah, about the media piece later on, Lip. But uh, he said in the presser afterwards, anybody that thinks that the declaration was wrong doesn't know as much as we know. And partly that was to just reinforce the point that at the end of the day, Australia were, what, 60-odd runs behind um, when stumps were pulled. And Bairstow and... Anderson put on 60-odd runs. So exactly. if, if we'd have got a couple of extra poles, then you know it's game on and you're chasing 80 or 90. So that decision has made no difference whatsoever on the potential outcome of this game. And arguably, I think it's put us in a stronger position because I'd much rather be scoring no 60 or 70 runs with literally no pressure. Mm. Going from 530 to 590 rather than having to go from naught to 80, um, or arguably from 130 to 210 with four wickets in hand and the pitch going uh, going up and down. So, yeah, anyone who says different has got rocks for brains for me. I completely agree, Binksy. Um, it's, you know, score them while you can, absolutely. And realistically, England put themselves in a position where had they dismissed Manus or had they dismissed Marsh, they would have opened up an end. And we talked at the end of the last test how Australia's batting lineup hasn't performed as well at the bottom order as England has. So I think they got it absolutely right. Unfortunately, Australia were able to resist just long enough that rain saved them. Any other different combination of circumstances, and England could have won that game by an innings. So I, I, I completely agree with you, and I don't think Ben Stokes should look back on this declaration with anything other than, yeah, actually, we got this one just about right. It's just that weather intervened slightly more than they hoped it would, and Australia resisted for just long enough. Yeah, and, and I think, again, if you just look at the, you know, they were going to play 98 overs, I think, yesterday. Um, so you look at the overs that have been lost in this game. Uh, over eight's, again, absolutely appalling. So, again, if you kind of fast forward that and add the extra seven or eight overs that should have been played in each of the first three days as well, if it wasn't for the over eights, then all of a sudden um, it's, a, yeah, it's, a, it's a different story. Yeah, different story again. So, yeah, uh, I've got, no, got no beef with this declaration, um, although it wasn't a declaration, obviously, uh, with, with Jimmy Anderson just kicking one off middle stump. But, yeah, no, no problems whatsoever. Let's stay on the peripheral stuff, seeing as we're talking about captaincy and, and Baldy, you know, all this this Cummins talk and, and the criticism that he's faced. I do think, before I let you sort of answer as to whether that's fair or not, I do think that the way that I've been fascinated to see the way that Australia has come in with a clear plan about how they've, they've obviously seen England's playing very positive, you know, aggressive cricket at the moment. And they've come here with a plan to combat that and to and whether you like the fact that they've played sometimes what people are calling negative cricket, in some ways, you know, it's very hard to argue that that hasn't worked and it has disrupted England. It caused them to declare in that first test that, you know, whether it caused them to declare or whether England would have done that anyway, you know what I mean? Like all of these things are playing into the way that England's playing and they've decided, well, to counteract that, we're going to do this. And it, it does seem very clear but in this test, everything that Cummins did kind of just didn't, it almost seemed to backfire. He was moving players from, you know, the ball would go somewhere, he would move the move a fielder, the ball would then go where that fielder was. Yeah, it, it, it was just a calamity in this, series, in this game. Yeah, um, lots to unpack there. 
in this particular test match, Cummins didn't get his captaincy right, and he had probably a combination of not enough cattle on the field that could ask England genuine questions. So the lack of a fourth seamer or the lack of a spinner meant that he didn't have the option to have multiple plans to to bowl at England. He basically had a plan A, swing the ball and take wickets, which is what they've done for years and years and years and been tremendously successful at, or plan B is to bowl bounces. And if that didn't work, then they had really no plan C to go back to because they had no genuine spin option. They didn't have a bowler who could dry and end up, who could, you know, who could give them different looks, which is a result of their selection and perhaps a little bit of unimaginativity as captain, if I could, if I could coin a new word. I was going to say but, that is not a word. No, it's not. It's complete. I've completely made it up on the spot. I think Captain uh, Cummins' captaincy has has waxed and waned a little bit in the series. In that he tried the bouncer thing and it worked for him. He tried it and it didn't work. I think when things aren't working for him, he looks a little bit bereft. Um, and the only criticism that I would perhaps level at Australia is not whether Cummins should be a great captain uh, or should be continue to be captain of the side because if you look at his record over the last five tests, he's won the World Test Championship. He's retained the Ashes, and he's won three out of the last five tests. He's had 20 tests in charge and won 11, lost four or five and drawn the remainder. So his record is good from a a captaincy perspective. I think the challenge that Cummins is going to have is, is he putting a diverse enough crowd around him that are challenging some of his ways of thinking to provide a diversity of a point of view that when it's not working, when plan A and B is not working for you, what else have you got in the kit bag? Because at the moment, on the basis of this test match, and I'm just talking about this test match, it didn't look like Australia had anything other than plan A and maybe a little bit of plan B. Now, let's give England some credit. England punched Australia in the mouth and really took advantage of when they were on top in this test match, and they haven't done that really to this point in the series. So you've got to give the England batters credit that when they were on top, they really punished Australia. They did not let the foot off the gas. Their top four, one of them got a big hundred. Everyone else supported him and batted around him. And then Johnny Bairstow was able to do Johnny Bairstow things at the end of it and really capitalise and really hit Australia where it hurts when they were out of ideas. Look, Australia didn't have a great day in the field either. They missed opportunities with runouts and catches. Pat Cummins had a bit of a follow day where he'd, you know, follow, he basically followed the ball all day bowled a little bit negative, but ran out of ideas. That sometimes happens to you as a captain. Sometimes you have days like that. The question I've got for Australia is, is there a diverse enough thought process in their dressing room, their coaching staff and their captaincy to be able to have more good days and more plans than they've got at the moment? Bordy, just to build on that and maybe offer a counter point to you, is there also a, a question around... Cummins actually stamping his own identity on that captaincy. It, it seems as if he, you know, granted he's a bowling captain, so I, I know, you know, when he's often bowling, someone else might be moving the field around and making some of those sort of decisions and maybe even coming to him and going, I think our next change is this because mm. he's concentrating on doing what he does very, very well, which is open the bowling for, for Australia. But is it almost he's going a little bit too much to Smith and Warner and... Carey and and not when we then look at the counter in this series, Ben Stokes has very much been. I am the leader. Um, 
you know, you don't set your fields, I'm going to set your field and I'm going to, you know, back you and trust you and all those kind of cliches that have come out. Mm. But he's very clearly pulled every single string through this, you know, through this, through this series. So I, I just wonder whether a little bit of it is Pat Cummins maybe stepping out of that sort of shadow of why he got the leadership of this side. Um, and you know, stamping some of his personality and authority on it now. As you said, his record is not. You know, if you just said to him at the start of this summer, you retain the urn um, with a test to go, and have a chance to win the urn with a test to go, and you've already got that ridiculous mace in your hand luggage. Mm. Then you know that's a you pretty good that. summer. Yeah, yeah absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I would agree with you, Adam. I think Australia just. I don't know whether it's diversity of thinking or or Pat Cummins is establishing a leadership style that is quite collaborative because it does feel like Australia has got quite a lot of voices and maybe it's that Pat Cummins' voice isn't shining through enough um, on the field. I, I just think that we didn't try and do enough innovative things when England were on top. We seem to be reactionary rather than trying to be innovative. And if you have a look at some of the fields that Ben Stokes set, he set that like reverse umbrella field to Usman Khawaja that ultimately worked. I, I just think that, that Cummins has almost been outpointed in the innovation stakes um, by Stokes at a couple of periods, like key periods in this series. And I think, look, he did have a bad day, but, but Stokes is definitely um, winning that battle at the moment. That's probably enough uh, questioning and, and criticism for now. Why don't we... I, I really want to just give Banksy the opportunity to to praise a lot of these English players because there were, there were a lot of very good performances from the England side. And someone I want to sort of start with is Zach Crawley. And um, I know we talked a little bit about him, but now in previous episodes, but now he's the leading run scorer in the series. And, and I, I often, um, I often uh, come back to uh, this thing that Colin Monroe said to us. I know listeners who have uh, long time listeners of the podcast have kind of Heard me talk about this many times when when we are talking about Brendan McCullum, but it really just rippled away at me when I was watching Crawley bat in this series. And and basically the idea is that Colin Monroe sort of said to us that when he's playing in a T20 tournament, his job as an opener is to uh, kind of play two or three match-winning innings throughout the tournament. And if he does that, then he's had a very good tournament. And, and uh, I think as a fan, we're often looking for consistency. But in this series and watching Crawley, even though he actually has been relatively consistent throughout the series in terms of getting off to decent starts and kind of, you know, kickstarting the England innings and putting the Australian batters under pressure, I think that what maybe as maybe as a former player in Brendan McCullum is sort of looked at, he perhaps is not so focused on uh, consistency, and he sort of understands that. If Zach Crawley can win us one of these Ashes tests by playing a match-winning innings, it doesn't matter what he gets in the rest of the series. And and look, maybe I'm you know maybe I'm just putting ideas and uh, my my thoughts into what you know Brendan McCullum's actually thinking. He's probably a much smarter cricket brain than I have. So, but that idea, I think you guys have probably got the idea now of what I've been thinking. And and yeah, I just think that they probably deserve a lot of credit for the way they've gone about backing Crawley. Uh, you know, Crawley's obviously deserves a huge amount of credit for for taking this chance. I think the pitches that they've uh, prepared have kind of played into that a little bit. And again, that maybe they deserve credit for that as well, because Stokes said at the start of the series, we want to pick 
Uh, we want flat wickets, and this is how we think we can combat Australia. But Binksy, I'll, I'll just throw the after my little rant there. I'll just fl- throw the floor open to you, and you can kind of praise as many of the English players as you want, and probably particularly that batting uh, innings because yeah, it was just a, a demolition that five hundred and ninety odd. Yeah, absolutely. And I think with Corley, we talked about that consistency and we talked about almost being given the excuse not to be consistent in this series. And it was about maybe he comes off once, but he's actually got, if you look at it, seven scores, um, not seven big scores, but seven scores over 33 in this series and has set the tone at the top of the order on more than one occasion. Um, in fact, probably on four or five occasions throughout the course of this this series. And then, look, has absolutely put the icing on the cake. He got a little bit of luck. He got a couple of inside edges, a couple that flew over the slips. But I, I think the way you know the way that he played, he, he probably deserved that a little bit. I think probably one of the key things that's actually helped him is that to an extent, and I don't want to go on about this, but Cummins has kind of helped with some of his captaincy. Because really clearly from even from the first ball of the series where he crunched it through extra cover for four, there was a deep point at that um, at that juncture as well. So um, I think almost it was like it's going to be a little bit harder for us to hit those boundaries. And therefore, I can actually just hit the sweeper hard for one. And that's fine because I'm keeping the score ticking over and that, you know, that still remains positive. And I think that's what's helped him to build those, you know, build those starts. But yeah, this innings was just, oh, I mean, um, I, I watched a lot of this series, a hell of a lot of this series, but this was the day where literally I was in so much trouble with my wife because I stayed up and watched the whole of that innings. I, you know, I, I crawled into bed at, you know, quarter to five in the morning and um, <laughs> and kind of had a lion until 10 o'clock <laughs> with my, you know, kids screaming in the background because, uh, yeah, it was just fantastic to watch that that day's, uh, day's play. What I do want to talk about, though, so Lippy, you, you gave me the, you know, the, the the permission to sort of talk about this. I actually think throughout this whole vernacular, and I don't want to get too carried away because we're two one down in the series. It doesn't matter whether we think we've played the better cricket or not. We've had the, you know, rubber the green or not. At the end of the day, that you know, the urn is gone now. So let's put this into perspective. The record books are going to remember this as a series where Australia retained the Ashes in England, just like they've done. Um, ad infinitum with a couple of exceptions in the last sort of 30 years or so but and the bowling performance um, that England put in I think actually was better than the batting performance and basball we've talked quite often about basball and the positive intent that the batting has has created and it's in the mould of Brendan McCullum and Stokes has kind of set that tone himself a little bit but when you actually look at the facts that the only way that with weather around, we were going to be able to have this game plan was to stick Australia in and restrict them to a score that was below par and then go and bat really, really positively to give ourselves a chance of winning this game. And I think every single one of those bowlers needs a massive amount of credit for restricting Australia to three and a half runs and over on a pitch that was as flat as a pancake um, and even, you know, we'll talk about it, I'm sure, James Anderson has, has come in for a lot of criticism. You know, he went for the lowest economy rate of any bowler in this test match and bowled 20 overs doing it. You know, that's not, a, you know, that's not a, um, a mean feat in that first innings. But certainly that, you know, overall bowling performance with you know, Chris Wokes first five for Old Trafford. Uh, Mark Wood bringing the gas again was probably a little bit unlucky in that first innings in terms of the wickets column. 
And then Stuart Broad's performance throughout the course of this series as leading wicket-taker has been uh, has been superb as well. So too many to really single out. But, I, I, yeah, I just don't want that bowling performance to go underrated despite just how spectacular scoring at, what was it, nearly... Uh, yeah, nearly sort of five and a half and over in that first innings. I mean, that is just that is just the stuff that dreams are made of. Yeah, look, I mean, the, we saw it here when um, New Ze- when England played New Zealand in the, in the home summer. It's it's kind of a weird uh, feeling because you you feel like at times you're in the game. There's all these chances being created, and there's a spell of thirty minutes an hour, and you think, okay, cool, we're in the game, and then you look up at the scoreboard, and suddenly you're way behind the game. If you don't pick up those wickets with the way that England's batting goes, then yeah, you just quickly fall way behind the game. And, and yeah, well, I think we've touched on it in a, a number of times about the bowling. And yeah, I, I just feel sad that Mark Wood wasn't uh, wasn't deemed fit enough, I guess, to to play in this series for those first couple of tests because I do think it could be a, a very different scoreline if if he was there. And, and Baldy's prediction of thirty wickets would have uh, maybe right on even. Track. Yeah, might have might have been on track, but yeah, I guess before we look ahead to to that next test, Baldy, I should probably give you uh, the floor to talk a, a little bit about probably what what was the the match saving innings uh, for Australia and and your friend Manus. Any words on him? Well, I think he's had a really good test match. I mean, he he has again given his wicket away probably twice in this test. To be fair, um, maybe the second innings dismissal was a little bit laboured, a little bit tired, um, but. It was his performance with the bat that really saved Australia, combined with Mitchell Marsh's resistance for over 100 balls when he really needed to knuckle down and show us that he can do something other than blast the ball all around the park, scoring at, you know, a strike rate of 80 or 90. So those two need to come in for some serious praise because in the first innings, all of the batters other than Usman Khawaja got starts and none of them went past 51, which is which is when you sent in pretty criminal really to all get starts and no one to go past 50 and then to have and stand in the field for 100 overs and watch your opposition score 190 and your number seven to score 99 not that's what good batting looks like so Australia were taught a really big lesson about what good first innings batting really looks like and Australia applied themselves a lot better in the second innings I mean when you have a look at it Yes, Warner and Kawaja were dismissed for low scores, but Australia were able to hang on because Manus was prepared to bat time. He batted 173 balls. Marsh batted 107 balls. And Cameron Green was able to hang around for, you know, 15 or 20 balls before the rain came. So that was really impressive because under those circumstances, it would have been easy to, you know, to fold over and, and get rolled. But Australia did a good job, just enough to hang on for as, as long as they did. Um, as far as the bowlers are concerned, look, Josh Hazelwood continues to to be impressive in this series. I think he got what another four or five wickets in that innings against against England, even though they were smashing us. Pat Cummins was a little bit disappointing, uh, one for 129, not his best figures. Um, but you know he's going to have the occasional bad day in the field. But I think it really comes down to to Marnus and and to Mitchell Marsh showing us that they had a bit of ticker. And, and just quickly then, Ch- Baldy. Uh, now that you've retained the urn, changes for, for for the oval. Does does Murphy come back in for Green? Well, I think it's really difficult for Australia to 
to make these selection decisions because they clearly got it wrong here. So the question really is, do you have the bottle to correct the mistake going into the oval? And to me, the mistake is not necessarily should they have picked Marsh and Green together. It's should they have picked David Warner in the first place. The problem now is that having retained the Ashes, there's no point in dropping David Warner. Like, what are you going to do? Drop him for Marcus Harris, who's going to play one test, and then maybe pick Warner for the rest of the home suburb to give him a like a retirement swan song series? Who knows? What's the benefit? Um, what are Australia going to do to look to the future? Marcus Harris is probably not the future for Australian cricket. He might be for a year or two, but we're really looking for the opener to come out of the clouds, to come out of the Sheffield Shield to replace David Warner and probably Usman Khawaja in the long term. So I think Australia have missed a trick really and not, if they were going to drop Warner, they should have done it for this test match just gone and not drop him for the oval. Absolutely, Australia need to find a spot for a fourth genuine bowler in their lineup. Whether or not it's to drop Cameron Green or whether or not it's to drop David Warner, they're the two performers who have given Australia the least in terms of contributions over the course of this series. But if you're looking to the future, Cameron Green has a really bright future with Australian cricket and David Warner's best years as Australia, one of Australia's greatest openers are probably behind him. So what do you do in that stage? You probably look to go, well, do we want to open with Manus Labuschagne for a test match and see what that looks like and bat Mitchell Marsh somewhere in the middle order? That way you could pick a decent bowling attack. That's probably the way I would go. And I would have gone that way in the fourth test. Uh, rather than wait until either a dead rubber or the pressure's really on you to make the tough decision. And Binksy, uh, f- same question really over to you about what England do. And and I think as well as what England would do, I'm keen to hear yeah, how important you feel this test is for, for the English summer, I guess, and, and when they look back at, at this series. Yeah, so look, I'll just pick up on Baldy's Australian selection. So that the one thing you've not mentioned there, Baldy, is leaving a seamer out and getting Cameron Green and Mitch Marsh to cover the third seamer and getting Murphy into the side that way. So Cameron Green actually bowled 15 overs and, and had the best economy rate and picked up a couple of poles in, in this wicket. Stark and Cummins, look, I think Cummins obviously probably plays as captain, but you know Stark and Hazel would have had some kind of fitness uh not fitness concerns, but workload concerns throughout the course of this series. So I think Australia have got a number of options. I, I, look, I don't think there's any um, any point in really tinkering at the top of the order, to be perfectly honest. For England, look, I, I think a big question is going to be just how the bowlers pull up. If Mark Wood is fit, I think you'd want him in that side um, at the Oval. That you know, He's certainly got the, the speed gun up and he's certainly, to be honest, he looks as if he's got a couple of those Australian guys, dare I say it, um, I wouldn't say scared, but certainly worried about the pace that he that he brings to the table. And they don't have a lot of answers to, to the way that he's bowled at them. So I really, really want to see him in the side. And then I think it's just a question of, I think Wokes is very, very doubtful for the oval. He's got a little bit of a niggle. Um, so I think they'll be looking at whether or not Robinson, Anderson or Tong probably plays in that, um, in that you know, seeming spot. Uh, I don't obviously expect any changes for them from a from a batting perspective, and it's almost a happy accident to an extent that Moeen Ali's given them a little bit of balance um, because it has meant that they've been able to get a spinner into the side, albeit that he's not massively um, contributed other than those couple of wickets in the last Test match where you know he did get Smith and Labuschagne out, but he's he's equally able as he was in this Test match to score a pretty important innings to 
chip out a few wickets, particularly if England bowl, you know, fourth at the over where it does sometimes turn a little bit on the um, on the last day. But honestly, I think it's almost going to be England pulling up at the oval in two days' time and the physio and the coach probably want to stand at the front of the bus and just see how some of these guys hobble off it uh, after the, you know, two and a half hours down the motorway to London, you know, Whoever's got the you know the stiffest back and legs getting off the bus might be the people that that miss out the oval because it's been a pretty full on full on summer. To answer your final question, look, I think that this is a live test match for England. I don't think that they want to be in a position where you know they don't play for the kind of records of two thousand and one and nineteen eighty nine and. You know, the last team since so-and-so that got off a boat and played a six-day test and all that kind of crap. They're not bothered about that. But I think what they want to do is be able to say, this was two each. And, you know, there's an argument to say that we played the better cricket in the Old Trafford test match. And, uh, you know, Basball and, and the way and the approach also has, has kind of been okay in the results ledger as well. So I don't see either team actually taking the foot off the gas. I think they'll take some Volterol, they'll, you know, they'll get some Gatorade and they will, they will, you know, literally to use that cliche, I think they'll leave it all out on the field. And I, I don't think any of the guys are going to be thinking about, well, there's a World Cup in a couple of months. I think that they will really want to end this, you know, end this fantastic series with a spectacle at the Oval. And, uh, you know, I'm always desperate to talk about some New Zealand stuff, but any final words, Baldy, on this test from, from you? No, I completely agree with Adam in that Australia and England will be going all guns blazing in this last test because nobody wants to lose this test. I guarantee you that. Nobody wants to concede on either side that the opposition played the better cricket and they just happened to luck their way into whatever the end, the scoreline ends up being. So I'm really looking forward to watching this game. Uh, it's probably the one that I'm going to watch the most of, I think, during the series because I think there's just – even though it's 2-1 – it is absolutely all to play for, and it's going to be really exciting to see maybe the sides with a, bit, a few of the shackles kind of removed now that the result is not in doubt to really go and, and give the best account of themselves. Lippy, let's move to some New Zealand cricketing news. I know you've been dying to get it on the podcast, a diet of ashes cricket. Um, New Zealand T20 squads to the UA and England have been announced. A couple of, I wouldn't necessarily say surprises, but I think we've been waiting for Dean Foxcroft to... Uh, to get a go, and, and and he's in and around that squad. Adi Ashok as well, um, and I think you know return to fitness as well for Carl Jamieson are, are the things that you probably would highlight from those announcements. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, you you mentioned Foxcroft there, and and uh, yeah, I, I like you say, I, I don't think he's a surprise. I, I, it ca- did come as a surprise to me that uh, the ICC had granted the the dispensation. I know that um, I, I don't know well. I wasn't aware that that was had happened. I knew that they were in discussions. And um, for anyone who doesn't know, yeah, um, they can go back and listen to our, our chat that we had with Dean uh, about a year ago. But basically, yeah, he went he went away to South Africa for a wedding just before, or for a wedding, or um, to see family just before uh, COVID hit. COVID hits, and he couldn't get back into the country, and basically just got locked out for a couple of years. And and uh, you know, in the ICC regulations, it means that he would normally not be eligible uh, to play for New Zealand because he's been out of the country for a certain amount of time. But has always, since the the moment he really moved to New Zealand, has felt like he's committed to 
playing here and and, and representing the Black Caps. And uh, yeah, the ICC have obviously seen it uh, as un you know unforeseen circumstances and and granted the dispensation, which is fantastic because yeah, he he does appear to be very very motivated and uh, and he's put the runs on the board. I mean, uh, I guess in in terms of that. You know, despite being awarded the the men's domestic player of the year, he probably hasn't because of the the time that he's missed out on playing first class cricket. Often we see uh, the players you know that have that have moved here, the likes of Wagner and, and Conway, when they've been ready to play for New Zealand, they've had such a weight of numbers behind them. Conway, you know, Conway is the as the most recent one, the the averages that he had by the time he was playing for, for New Zealand were, was just staggering. And he's obviously kept that as, as he's gone into the, the international game. Wagner was very similar, even though it was 10 years or so now when, when he, um, you know, when he entered the international stage, he'd put up wickets, uh, wickets after wicket after wicket in, in New Zealand first class cricket. And, and there was a real buzz around them getting into that side. Foxcroft has been a bit of that, but, you know, when you actually look at his record, he only averages 35 in first-class cricket, 38 in list A, and T20 has actually been his best format, averages almost 44 there. But but it's only 75 games, and I, I, I think uh, I, it's exciting to see him get his opportunity, but I think maybe I saw a few questions around, you know, could he maybe sneak into that, that World Cup squad? Because obviously there is a... a a little opening there with Kane Williamson, or we all think there's there's going to be. Unfortunately, that he's not going to be recovering from his injury. But you know, I, I think it probably is a bit too soon. That the fact that so they've named a squad of uh, fifteen uh, for the for the UAE leg of this tour, and then there's an, an England T20 series after that. And Foxcroft, Eddie Ashok, uh, and Will Young, and a few others have not been included in that England squad. Uh, or squad for the England game. So I think that's a bit of a clue that perhaps still the likes of Chapman and Nisham and even Ravindra are probably still ahead of him in the pecking order. But yeah, we've seen in the past New Zealand, you know, even recently with Mark Chapman, we've seen how they're willing to change their mind if they see something they really like. So Foxcroft's got his opportunity and uh, now we're going to see if he can take it. And and hopefully he does because he looks a, a very, very exciting prospect for New Zealand. Yeah, and Lippy, that's going to be, I think, uh, uh, I guess something that we're going to see more of in international cricket, where there's much, you know far many uh, more tours, and obviously then that sort of juxtaposition with the franchise leagues. If someone comes in and takes their opportunity, Harry Brook would be a great example of that. You know, burst onto the scene in, in you know, you wouldn't have thought he's getting really into that one day, you know, one day side when you list down that batting lineup that England had, Jason Roy and Alex Hales and Owen Morgan and Ben Stokes and Joe Root and uh, Joss Butler. And then he comes on, bursts onto the scene and all of a sudden's a three-format player. So these, you know, these bilateral series, I think whilst we sometimes bemoan the, um, the relevance of them, you know, one of the things that they're definitely relevant for is um, giving players an opportunity when perhaps some of their, you know, mates are um, off um, earning their deserved purses in these in these franchise tournaments and um, also want to talk a little bit about the South African side there's been a little bit of chat around them wanting to potentially move the dates and New Zealand cricket have said no way uh, you know we, we've got this baked into the calendar um, 
is that going to mean a yeah I guess a diminished test side coming out here because of that SAT twenty competition, which Graham Smith has has placed a lot of stock in, hasn't he, for the resurgence and the rebuilding of South African cricket? Well, I I, I think the the answer to that is yes, it probably does. It means that they'll um you know they've almost they've almost said that outright that they uh, the players are going to be uh giving priority to the SAT20 or, or the borders at least. And that means that the players will, that are selected in those franchises, which I think the option is in a couple of weeks, are all going to be there, which means you would think the likes of Nokia and Rabada and, and uh, yeah, the, the bulk of that bowling attack at least will be in, in that uh, tournament. So, yeah, it looks very likely that, you know, one of our big marquee series, even though I, I think we've, only, you know, we've, we have South Africa followed by Australia and those are, you know, two of the bigger names that we want to come down here. We've never beaten South Africa in a series. We'd, I'm sure, hopefully, I guess this gives us a really good opportunity to do that. Um, but yeah, everyone was very much looking forward to that. And and if it's weakened, I don't know. I mean, we've, we've bemoaned this, you know, regularly about how these T20 leagues are, are taking over and impacting on, on Test cricket. And, it, and it's just another example of that. I, I guess, as you, as you touched on there with the, the T20 stuff, in a way, it's it's giving Kyle Jameson, as you said, a chance to come back and kind of prove his fitness. I hope that he's going to be able to then be going into those test series, which are not until February and then in March against Australia. It gives him an opportunity to kind of get back into the setup and, and hopefully be ready to go by the time those test series come around. Because, yeah, as a fan, I mean, like we've talked about, the, the World Cup's I'm very focused on as as a, a Kiwi cricket fan, but apart from the World Cups, it's it's the test that I want to see us do really, really well at. And yeah, I'd love to see us take down South Africa. If they want to send a weak inside, then I'll take it. It's a it's a test test series win for us if we can if we can turn that around and then and then hopefully go into that Aussie series with with a lot of confidence and a lot of form. Fantastic. Let's close with some chat about the West Indies-India Test Match. I think um, just a quick trail as well for next week's show. We'll, of course, review the final Ashes Test Match of the summer. We'll also talk a little bit about the women's Ashes next week as well. So that's kind of you know been going on at the same time. It's been fantastic to have those games offset. We've not talked a great deal about that series, which was tied eight all. Um, but we'll include a wrap-up of that when we wrap up the English summer and both Ashes series next week. But uh, Test cricket um, doesn't stop anywhere around the world at the moment, it seems. Uh, India, West Indies, second test in Port of Spain. Virat Kohli, I think we said his uh, 29th Test 100, his 500th career game. His stats look very, very similar, if not slightly better, to Sachin's over a similar number of games. I saw a um, uh, uh, yeah, I, I guess a little post on that. But it looks as if India are going to get over the line in this second test as well. India um, resuming tomorrow with the West Indies needing another 289 runs. They've got to chase down 365, currently 76 for two. Um, after uh, yeah, after Coley's uh, runs in that first first innings. What do we want to say about Coley? He's certainly back in form. What do we want to say about Coley, Baldy? Why don't you give us uh, Why don't you give us uh, the take on uh, whether he's better than Sachin? Well, it's a big call. Um, I don't remember Sachin averaging fifty in T Twenty cricket though, and I don't remember him averaging fifty in ODI cricket. Like you look at his you look at his Test career. He's got twenty nine Test hundreds now. He's got well over eight thousand five hundred runs. He's probably got eight thousand six hundred runs by the time this Test match finishes. Um, 
He averages under 50 in Test cricket, but he averages 57 in ODI cricket and 52 in T20 internationals. Like That's an incredible record. To average over 30 in T20 internationals is good, and he averages 52. Unbelievable. When we get to our White Ball Hall of Fame, and we will get to it at some point, I think he'll feature heavily in the discussion on best white ball cricketers ever, particularly after he's you know, retired from the game. But, you know, he's he's back over the last 12 months. He's, he's come back. He, he came in for a lot of criticism, mostly from you, uh, Stuart, about his form prior to now. But, I mean, he's 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 demolished the West Indies in this in this test match. Uh, West Indies have got a long way to go to save the game. And, and it's down to my man, Taj Chanderpaul, to get them home. Yeah, look, I... I... Yeah, as you say, it, I've it's been uh, I've really enjoyed actually Virat Kohli in this la- these past twelve months. He's he's looked uh, he's looked really positive out there on the field. I think we talked about that in the past, and and how he he seems to yeah the, the attitude uh, seems to be really good at the moment, and um, oh, it's just it's sort of just had that fairy tale aspect to it, didn't it? The five hundredth game and, and and another ton. I think it's his, I think it is uh, five years since he scored a, a test ton away from home. So it, yeah. It's been a while since he's uh, been putting up the runs, but it, yeah, it does seem like the West Indies is is the team you want to play at the moment if you want to get yourself back into form. So yeah, good good to see. Always good to see Virat get runs. I mean, honestly, you know, as I said, I've I've, I've you sort of criticise players uh, because you like them in many ways, and and uh, watching him score runs is is always an awesome thing to do. So yeah, very 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 happy to see him get another hundred. Fantastic. Well, boys, we said we'll be back next week um, to talk Ashes cricket. Uh, We'll also have plenty more as we lead into the White Ball World Cup as well. So the cricket really doesn't stop um, regardless of what season it is and the amount of rain we're getting certainly here in Auckland currently. I'm just looking down my run list. Um, We definitely covered off pretty much all of the elements that we got. Um, I've got a note here that Baldy wanted a 45-minute rant about why Australia's selection was abominable for this test match. We definitely covered that in the podcast. Um, If we can get that down into a 60-second clip, Baldy, I'm sure it will be the thing that trails this podcast on all of our social channels. But for now, it is good night and God bless from us all here in Auckland on the Top Order podcast. We'll be back in your podcast feed very, very soon. If you do want to dip back into the back catalogue, though, um, please go and listen to the Mike Cossey interview. Um, If you want a bit of an ashes fix in between these test matches, it certainly brings back some memories of some fantastic series, Um, as well, of course, of our Cricketing Hall of Fame, which we mentioned as well. So we're down into the business area. Um, Go and have a listen to Shane Warne versus Murali if you want, again, a little bit more Ashes cricket in your podcast feed between these two test matches. But we'll be back next week to talk more and more cricket. Good night. God bless.